On July 27, 1929, many of the world's powers signed an agreement in Geneva that dictated the treatment of enemy soldiers captured during wartime. The Geneva Convention was seen as a revolution in international law, putting the world on a more civilized path for the future in the wake of the horror of World War I. However, as Shakespeare put it, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose, and while the promise of humane treatment at the hands of one's captors might encourage a soldier with no hope of escape to surrender rather than die needlessly, the reality is a convention is little more than ink on a piece of paper if someone decides not to abide by it, as was tragically proven time and time again during the fight against the Axis powers. In today's episode, we are going to examine three notorious prisoner of war camps that demonstrates just what imprisonment by the enemy can bring, and the lengths some will go in order to escape and get back into the fight against tyranny. Welcome to Wars of the World. Few events in history can compare in scale to Operation Barbarossa, the German and Axis invasion of the Soviet Union on July 22, 1941. It is a testament to the meticulous planning and preparation of the German High Command that such a feat was even feasible on a logistic scale, but even they were surprised by the initial effectiveness of their troops, with tanks especially often advancing beyond the reach of their supply chain forcing them to stop and wait for the rest to catch up. With such dramatic successes in the opening months, and with the Soviet army being at times nothing short of inept in countering the invaders, inevitably many were taken prisoner. While being imprisoned by the Germans was bad enough for the Western allies of France, Britain and the United States, for the Soviets it was a living hell. The treatment of Soviet prisoners was dictated by Nazi ideology and its quest for racial purity. Seeing the people of the Soviet Union as inferior, therefore meant that in their twisted minds they were not bound by legal technicalities such as the Geneva Convention in their handling of them, something that was backed up by Hitler's promise prior to the invasion that no German soldier would ever be punished for his conduct on the Eastern Front. Expecting to take prisoners, camps were built to house them, and one of the most notorious was Stalag 326. The first Soviet POWs arrived there on July 10th, 1941, and within three weeks, the camp was already holding 12,000 men. Conditions for these men was appalling, there being almost no permanent accommodation or shelter, and rations were meager at best, as their German captors instigated a weeding out program, effectively starving the weakest to death, leaving the strongest to survive and work as slave labor for the Nazis until they too would succumb to exhaustion and malnutrition, after which they would be replaced by fresh prisoners. A calorie intake of around 800 calories was considered comparatively high for the prisoners, who of course often took to fighting amongst themselves for every scrap. The situation was exacerbated by the lack of clean water, the only water source being untreated, dirty water, pumped directly from a nearby stream. 
Deaths at the camp skyrocketed from 21 in July of 1941 to 885 by December, and the onset of winter, even with the construction of basic shelters, claimed many more. Proper accommodation blocks were built by the prisoners the following summer, but these were overcrowded and poorly maintained. The camp was heavily guarded by German soldiers and Soviet collaborators opposed to Stalin's regime who were also heavily armed and often dished out the harshest of punishments for the most minor of infractions. As the best troops were needed at the front, often the guard details comprised of members of reserve units of an age that averaged in the 40s and 50s. The entire camp was surrounded by a 10-foot-tall, double-road, barbed-wire fence, which was electrified, making it all but impossible for anyone to try and escape. December 1942 was by far the worst month for deaths, with winter helping to claim 1,761 prisoners. As if the brutal conditions and relentless work were not enough, there were also the frequent visits from the Gestapo, who inspected the prisoners looking for the most undesirable among them. Jews and known Communist Party members were always picked out and taken away, their fate either being immediate execution or use in a nightmarish medical experiment to satisfy the twisted curiosity of men such as Joseph Mengele. As the war progressed and the Soviet Union turned the tide in the east and began pushing the Nazis back, the overcrowding at Stalag 326 only got worse as camps further east were abandoned before the Soviet army liberated them. Many of the new arrivals were housed in tents until new facilities could be built to house them, or they were processed and sent to other forced labor camps, or of course extermination camps like Auschwitz. Finally, as Nazi tyranny was in its death throes, on April 2nd, 1945, the US 2nd Armored Division liberated the camp with around 9,000 prisoners still being held there, many in a poor physical state from abuse and neglect. Exact figures on how many died at Stalag 326 continue to be debated by historians, specifically concerning evidence to justify the numbers often given and just what constituted a death attributed to the prison, since many died of the work they were forced to undertake in support of German industry, such as being down the mines. A conservative number can be found in the region of around 15,000, while some historians argue it is as high as 70,000. The situation is confused further by the discovery of mass graves near the camp, which also house Nazi victims who died elsewhere in the region, their bodies being brought to Stalag 326's graves as a way of disposing of them. Regardless of the real figure, for those who experienced the camp, Stalag 326 was a waking nightmare. But even more tragically for many of them, repatriation offered no solace. Thousands of Soviet men who had survived their imprisonment found themselves wrongly accused of being collaborators by paranoid Soviet authorities who believed the Nazis would not leave anyone alive who wouldn't help them. Many of these ex-prisoners were denied the right to return to their hometowns and villages and spent years after the war effectively in exile in their own country. It is often said that after experience such trauma as being a prisoner, some people can't leave that period of their life behind. For these unfortunate ex-prisoners, that was certainly the case. When it comes to tales of horror where it concerns prisoners of war, the only real rival to Nazi Germany's treatment of Soviet soldiers was Japan and its treatment of allied prisoners. 
In the militant Japanese society of the 1940s, the thought of surrendering to one's enemy was deplorable. To do so would invite shame upon oneself and the family, it being better to die honorably in the service of the Japanese emperor. Armed with this belief, the Japanese expected their enemies to do the same. So when thousands of allied soldiers from Singapore, Hong Kong, and the Philippines found their way into Japanese hands, the Japanese troops looked upon them with disgust that they did not fight on till their last breath. Japan was not a signatory on the Geneva Convention, and so had no legal obligation towards their prisoners. And so Japan's POW camps were nothing short of hell factories for the poor souls contained behind their fences. Any of these camps could qualify for an entry on this list, but one has been singled out for special mention, particularly amongst British Commonwealth troops and local civilians who found themselves interned there either as a permanent residence or awaiting transport to join slave labor gangs. Known as Changi Prison, the camp was located in eastern Singapore and was actually two facilities. The first was Changi Jail, which had been built by the British to house around 500 inmates, although the Japanese would use it to house some 3,000 civilian prisoners guilty of various crimes against the empire. The main POW camp was located nearby, at the British Salarang Barracks, and was used to house around 50,000 predominantly Australian and British soldiers captured when Singapore fell. According to accounts of the prisoners, in the initial few months when Japan was largely winning the war in the Pacific, conditions were tolerable with there being just enough food and medicine to keep them fairly healthy. They had to learn basic Japanese so they could understand instructions given to them by their guards, who imposed strict military discipline upon them, but also allowed them a lot of freedom. Concerts and sporting events were organized to keep the men occupied, while work details focused on the maintenance of the camp. However, by the middle of 1942, the situation began to change dramatically as the Japanese went on the defensive following their defeat at the Battle of Midway. Seeing the prisoners as a source of cheap labor, the Japanese began organizing them into work parties repairing critical infrastructure such as the nearby docks. They were also employed in the dangerous loading of weapons aboard ships bound for the front lines, and in order to encourage cooperation, the Japanese began withholding food and medicine only for those who worked. Meanwhile, women and children were marched over nine miles to the camp on March 8th, 1942, to work jobs such as sewing and cleaning. Disease and malnutrition soon began to run rampant amongst the troops, but worse was to come. When an allied prisoner escaped, the enraged Japanese demanded that the remaining prisoners sign a document stating they would make no effort to escape. 20,000 prisoners were herded into the square outside the barracks and were kept there without food or water until the Allied officers ordered their men to sign. But when even this didn't work, the impatient Japanese selected groups of prisoners who were then marched off to the nearby beach and shot. In the end, it was the arrival of disease at the camp and the withholding of treatment that finally forced the prisoners to submit to their captors' demands. As the war progressed, the prisoners at Changi fit enough to work began being shipped out across Japan's increasingly stretched empire. Some were quite famously sent to work building railways in Southeast Asia to keep the Japanese logistics chain going, while some even found their way to the Japanese mainland, where they were forced to work down mines when the local Japanese miners went off to join the war. In either case, men were literally worked to death and then replaced with fresh prisoners. If the prisoners didn't appear to be working hard enough, then at the end of the day, 
groups of them were forced to dig graves, and prisoners were then randomly executed. Compared to some other Japanese camps where the death rate was as high as 27%, Chungi's death rate amongst prisoners from disease, malnutrition, and of course executions was lower than most. However, if the distribution of manpower from the camp for the Empire's needs is taken into consideration, the figures become significantly higher. When the Japanese Emperor announced an end to the war in August of 1945, the Japanese guards simply handed control of the prison over to the prisoners and left. Afterwards, it was used to house German U-boat crews who had made the perilous voyage to Japan from Germany. If any one location has come to symbolize the story of being taken prisoner during the Second World War, it is without a doubt Kolditz Castle. Inspiring books, movies, and even games, Kolditz represents the determination of the Allies to keep resisting Nazi tyranny no matter what. At first glance, the Renaissance-era castle appears almost picturesque, as it sits majestically on a Saxony hillside near the towns of Hartha and Grimma, overlooking the River Mold. Prior to the Nazis coming to power, it already had quite a colorful history, being home to the first wildlife park in Germany, before serving as both a hospital for wounded soldiers during the Napoleonic Wars, and then another kind of hospital, when it was used to securely house the criminally insane. When Hitler became Chancellor in 1933, the Nazis quickly repurposed the castle as a prison for political opponents, and of course the undesirables of their new society, such as homosexuals and Jews. Upon the outbreak of war in 1939, and the sudden influx of POWs, the German High Command found another use for the castle, namely to house captured officers who had proven themselves to be troublemakers in the regular camps, either by organizing resistance to their German guards or having already escaped and been recaptured. Initially, the prison housed men from all the occupied lands and combative nations, but from 1943, it was used solely to house American, British, and Commonwealth officers, and it was in this period it would achieve its great notoriety. With high walls, heavily armed guards, and being perched on a hilltop near a river, the Germans were initially supremely confident in the facility holding the most disruptive of prisoners. And yet despite its reputation, Kolditz actually had a surprisingly high number of breakouts, proving the men held there were indeed some of the most tenacious of the Allied war effort. One man, Future British politician Airy Neve made two attempts to disguise himself as a German soldier, although both failed. One of the more elaborate disguises adopted by a French prisoner saw him attempt to disguise himself as a woman. Regular searches of the castle's cells and workshops by the German guards produced a wealth of improvised tools, escape equipment, and even dummy heads for placing in beds to fool them into thinking the men were asleep. The guards seized so much of this, in fact, that they created a museum to display it all to guests. However, the prisoners always seemed to manage to fashion together more, or at times take an opportunity that unexpectedly presented itself. Royal Air Force Flight Lieutenant Dominic Bruce, for example, found that his short stature, often the butt of many a joke amongst his fellow prisoners, proved advantageous when he managed to squeeze inside a Red Cross tea chest, which was then carried up to a third-floor storeroom. In a truly classic move, he improvised a rope by tying bedsheets together before climbing out of the storeroom window and down the side of the castle walls, going on the run for a week before being recaptured attempting to board a Swedish cargo ship. 
Perhaps the most well-known escape plan involved the building of a crude glider by British POWs Bill Goldfinch and Jack Best in the castle's lower attic above the chapel and was to be launched from the roof in order to fly them across the river. On the day of the planned escape, a crude runway was to be constructed from tables and the glider was to be launched using a pulley system based on a falling metal bathtub full of concrete, which theoretically would accelerate the glider to 30 miles per hour. Ultimately, the war ended before the glider could be used, but in a British TV documentary produced in 2000 by Channel 4, a replica of the glider was successfully flown, proving it was airworthy. 16 men would escape from Colditz and successfully make it back to Allied lines, while a number of others made successful escapes, having been taken out of the castle by Germans, often for medical attention. However, as the war entered its final months, they found their attempts were now being actively discouraged by Allied commanders, following the massacre of 50 POWs who escaped Stalag Luft III and were then recaptured in an event universally remembered as the Great Escape. The Allied commanders instead thought it better that the castle should be liberated as Germany was defeated. Only one man is reported to have been killed during an escape attempt from Colditz, namely British Lieutenant Michael Sinclair, who was shot by a guard. Allied troops overran the castle on April 16, 1945, and after Germany's surrender, it came under Soviet control and was again used as a prison for those causing trouble for the Soviet occupation forces. Meanwhile, in the West, the men held at Colditz became legends in their own lifetime their feats of escape becoming almost mythical, and the name of the camp has become ingrained in the popular narrative of the Second World War. And there you have three famous POW camps of World War II. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.